one of the most fascinating things in this part of the internet, the nefarious part, are the economics behind it. Like the economics of spam always blow my mind. Very lucrative. Yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different scams that are run. So it, it's important to know that the the ads as a vector for malicious behavior, these are attacks that are at the moment generalists in the sense that the the attacker will focus on compromising the vector to get anything they can through. And so the once they get through, they then all right, great. I'm on the user's device. I've got access. I'm present. They will often, at that point, go and tap into affiliate marketplaces, uh, some of which are run off the dark web uh, and that are not above board. We'll ask and say, hey, I've got grandma in the UK. Who wants her? Who wants to do something? Assassin Scotch. I'm TK, founder at Unstoppable. On this podcast, I talk about the two things I love the most, SaaS businesses and Lagerville and Scotch. On today's episode, we have LD joining us, CEO and co-founder of Confiant. We'll be digging into his founder story and the incredible work he's doing at the intersection of SaaS and security, not to be confused with SaaS and Scotch. LD, welcome to the show. TK, thank you very much for having me on. Very excited to be here. Yeah. So we're at Thanksgiving and you have to explain to grandma what Confiant does. How do you explain to grandma what you guys do over there? We, we block bad ads. So we protect grandma from falling for phishing scams, from getting her devices infected and then her personal information stolen and, and her computer full of malware. It's a really scary world out there. And the more I talk to security company CEOs, the more I'm like, oh my God, maybe I... Maybe ignorance is bliss, but uh, you know, even in the ad ecosystem, it is insane. It's uh, the ad ecosystem. So there, there's two major vectors of attack in the ad world. There's the vector of attack where, where bad actors will create fraudulent impressions where the, they impersonate the user mm-hmm. and they're there to defraud the advertiser. So they're trying to steal the advertiser's money, get them to spend and have it go into a fake bucket that goes to the, the bad actor. Yeah. The other vector of attack is one where the bad actors act as the advertiser and go to attack the real user. And that one's obviously the one that, that we focus on and confine, but it's a very interesting vector because at the end of the day, digital ads is the best way to reach large amounts of people. It is built for that. Yeah. Uh, and therefore there, it's always going to attract bad actors that seek to exploit the system and, and take advantage of the, of the errors and issues it may have and how it, it verifies and vets advertisers and then engage with on a false premise and with false intent with the user to, to get them to, to do something bad. That's going to be worse. That's going to be bad for them. Yeah. So it's- One of the most fascinating things in this kind of part of the internet, the nefarious part, and then you have the people that are protecting it are the economics behind it. Like the economics of spam always blow my mind. So maybe, and I want to dig into how you got into this, but maybe for the audience, can we talk a little bit around what are the economics behind this? Very lucrative. Yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different scams that are run. So it, it's important to know that the the ads as a vector for malicious behavior, these are attacks that are at the moment generalists in the sense that the the attacker 
will focus on compromising the vector to get anything they can through. And so the, once they get through, they then, all right, great. I'm on the user's device. I've got access. I'm present. They will often at that point go and tap into affiliate marketplaces, uh, some of which are run off the dark web uh, and that are not above board, where they'll ask and say, hey, I've got grandma in the UK. Who wants her? Wow. Who wants to do something? And then they will actually sell that access and place someone else's scam in front of her. So they are the people that are, this is an industry. There are specialized actors who are great at breaking through the first door from a technical hack perspective. And then they hand off to the people that have to do the psychological hack. So as an example, one of the, uh, the, the vector has evolved over the years where 10 years ago, it was drive-by downloads leading straight to exploit kit that were, that were hacking the device, building botnets. And so very deep core tech stuff. As the browsers have improved, the, the attackers have shifted because this is always, this is an always arms race. And so then five years ago, it was a lot of uh, forceful redirects to phishing scams. So I'm sure you and, and everyone else on the internet and everyone on the mobile device at the time got that offer for the free Amazon gift card that you were told you won. Hate to break it to you, you're never getting it in the mail. That was a scam, it's a phishing scam oh. uh, where they were looking to get access to personal data. We're now seeing an evolution where the redirect mechanisms that are JavaScript based have started to be constrained by the browsers. And so we're now seeing an evolution of the bad actors to what we call malicious clickbait. It's where they have shifted the attack code from the ad, but into the landing page. Mm -hmm. And they use clickbait, so an ad that's made to be clicked. And when I say it's made to be clicked, this is psychologically designed to get someone to say, ooh, wait, let me click on that. And yeah. they get upwards of, I think if the, the average click-through rates for normal ads is something like a 10th of a percent. We've seen click, malicious clickbait campaigns that get over 5% click-through rate. So gotcha. one out of 20 people click on it rather than one out of 2000 people for normal ads. So this is how good they are. And then once they click over, it actually, you land on a landing page where, so the, the, these criminal scams, they will use clickbait often tied to a celebrity's image. And they'll say uh, in Australia, Mel Gibson got beaten up or Mel, Mel Gibson dies of COVID, click here to learn. So someone's, oh my God, some, who beat up Mel Gibson? Let's go take a look. They click through. Now you're onto a page where uh, that page, the once you click through, is one that tells you actually, no, Mel Gibson was in dire financial straits, and uh, he was able to save his fortune by investing in this Bitcoin investment structure. Do you want to learn more about it? And if so, click here, and then that brings you to a third page, which is an actual scam company that's been running these Bitcoins. There, there, there. Kiev, or they're, they're not Kiev, sorry, they're somewhere, I believe in Russia, not in Ukraine, but I think he's called the Wolf of Kiev. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's called it in Ukraine. Anyways, they've been, we've tracked that the feeder companies that were driving revenue to this scam last summer were making upwards of a million dollars a day. Wow. So this is not how much the scam company makes. Right. This is how much the feeder company that sends grandma to the page saying, hey, she's ripe for it. She's going to fall for this right. million dollars a day. So obviously system around this of service oh, yeah. providers to first attract and generate the leads and then pass them off to the offer. And then the, the yeah. companies that are fulfilling the offer, like it's a whole enterprise and an ecosystem. Oh yeah. Big business. I want to dig more into how you guys fight the great battle. But my big question for you is how did you get into this business? I looked at your background on LinkedIn. You've been in the media space for quite some time. You were in this inter interesting intersection of media and biz dev is how I wanted to place it. 
And prior to that, you did do a startup. And so walk me through how you woke up one morning, told your co-founder, like, hey, let's go bust some bad guys in the internet, which sounds- So, so I specifically, I went looking for him. So the way I've always looked at my career in education is that I, I've been in startups from the very beginning. So I, I went to school, went to Boston College for university, dropped out after two years, worked on Wall Street uh, for a year, and, and decided at the end of that, A, had a front row seat to the dot-com crash. So that was super interesting. Uh, but I decided by the end of it that it's like finance, as much as it is intellectually interesting, wasn't creative and engaging enough for me. It wasn't actually fun. Uh, so I went back to school, did computer science instead. And then my first job out of college was doing sales for a fintech uh, startup in London that was backed by Carlisle. That got bought. And then I moved back to New York, switched over to a friend's media tech startup. So I was building digital signage networks in, in grocery stores. So we did one in, in the Midwest for Myers. We, we brought ABC in for content and stuff like that. I moved out to San Francisco and joined my first ad tech startup that was backed by a VC called Sutter Hill. And that's where I was doing both business development and operations. And I did my own startup out there, failed learned a lot, came back to New York and was uh, running the division of the, uh, a digital out-of-home media company. When after a year of that, I was like, all right, it's, I don't want to be in the media chain directly. I want to be actually in, the, in tech. So let's go find someone who's smart, who has a good idea. And so basically I, I concluded a long time ago that you can't plan to be someone that has an idea. Yeah. Either you have an idea or you don't. Right. You can plan to know what to do with an idea. You can plan to know how to translate that idea into a pro and to understand the problem better, understand how to build a product and a solution for the product, how to fundraise, how to structure a vision, how to motivate a team and how to push to make something happen. And so I basically spent my career working on those skills of, Hey, how do I, how, when I'm going to do this for myself, how am I going to do it? And let's, uh, let's observe. Let's go. Uh, and so. I was lucky in a way that most of the startups I've been a part of before compliant failed. A very of those six different companies that were all venture backed in different states and form, very few of them were actually successful. And so you end up seeing a lot of what not to do, obviously, but you also end up seeing the what are the little things that really matter that could make a difference if done well. When when you have a ton of money to throw at a problem, money papers over a lot of problems. And then uh, when you don't have a lot of money, you've got to actually try and figure out the problems yourself. Uh, yeah. So I went looking for my co-founder and uh, it took me about six months. Uh, I asked all my network of friends, Hey, that, that little phrase, who you didn't know that's smart. That's yeah. working on something interesting. It took me about six months to meet him. We spent about three months really diving into the problem. So as to under, so I could understand what he was working on. And, and then also just in terms of really sniffing on ourselves and making sure that we were aligned in, because that was one of the lessons I'd learned from my previous experiences that you got to be really careful who you pick as your partner, because this is someone that you're going to be in the trenches with for a long time. And so you need to make sure that you can communicate. You need to make sure that you're aligned and that the, uh, you have a shared vision that you're able to work in, uh, in complete trust and with that shared responsibility. And so I have to say. Yeah, the security nature of what we do, the security nature of what my co-founder Jerome pitched me on was fascinating. The reality is that security is a completely different type of tech than anything else in the world. Because unlike every other technology, security is adversarial. There is another person on the other side that is constantly going to be updating and trying to avoid and, and evade and game the system that you are trying to defend. And so that, that constant back and forth requires a, a high level of diligence when it comes to the design of the system from a technology point of view, as well as it definitely rewards creativity in terms of being able to constantly think of that person and really architect the overall engagement so as to control it over time. And if those founding principles of the technology are, are, are flawed, if there are contradictions in how they're built and modeled, 
then those edge cases will be exploited by the bad actors. So there's also a cultural nature to security work that is very exciting because it's, you can tell your team, hey, we are the good guys. We yeah. are Batman. It's, we are, we're, we're, it's, we're normal humans and we're going out there and we're protecting people. And so you can imagine that for tech engineers that were in the ad world who historically had worked a lot on making the ads a bit more intrusive and a bit more, a bit more loud and, and be able to serve a bit faster, it was very appealing. We were able to draw a lot of the great talent from, from that world because it's, oh, wait, so I can do what I do and be inside of that world, but A, with this adversarial mindset, and then B, also knowing that at the end of the day, we are helping people. Yeah. If you look at the, uh, the mission statements for most uh, startup, security startups, they're all very similar. And they, they all boil down to, we are going to, to help people. Who, who do you think, okay, let me ask you differently. I, I actually think that you learn a lot more when things go wrong mm -hmm. than when things go perfectly right in the, the rare cases that they do. So given that this is not your first startup and Jerome pitched you on this idea as you were going into it and you were starting to get towards initial product and traction, obviously you're well past that now, but in those early days, what did you do differently? What did you approach differently? What was like the one thing you said, nope, we're going to do this right this time around? Yeah, that's a great question. I was a, a neophyte to both online advertising and security. And so Jerome spent a, a lot of time educating me on that in terms of me asking questions, reading, but really looking to understand the, uh, the guts of what he was saying in such a way that I could mirror it back to him and identify the flaws in his own thinking. So specifically, we, uh, we were doing security in ad tech. And it's, I talked about security being a unique technology. I actually believe there are three types of technology in the world. You've got normal software, which is, when I say normal, this is software that an engineer writes and he writes it well enough that when he hosts it on a server somewhere, when the businessman goes in and does a contract for it with a client, the, the software is going to be reliable enough that the SLA is tied to the hardware of, the, of the, where the, the system is hosted. Either the software does its thing. And that is most software in the world is that you write it, you host it, you're good, you're done. It solves the problem it does and it does it consistently. Ad tech is unique in that the ad tech ecosystem or the ad digital online advertising is doing 20 plus percent compound annual growth for running now 25 plus years. This is an industry that, that is just in such a constant mode of development and flux. And it has been built from uh, uh, connecting all these different generations into one living mass that that runs, uh, I think, $100 billion of money through it a year. Mm -hmm. The sheer scale of the infrastructure and the transactions put the financial markets to shame. A, a, small, uh, a small exchange can do billions upon billions of transactions a day. And the largest ones can do into the trillions sometimes, just in terms of the sheer volume and quantity of data that they're dealing with. So that creates a lot of inefficiencies. So building software in the ad tech world is a game of fire drills and it's a game of coming up with the least worst option that allows for the best continuity. The error rates that are acceptable in the ad world are mind boggling to any sophisticated technology company that is from the outside of it. In display ads, it's very traditional for there to be three to 5% error rates. I, three to 5% of impressions do not get filled with ads uh, because the system broke and wasn't able to deliver them. Uh, in video ads, that error rate starts at 15%. So let's go back to the original question. What did you approach differently? Like, what did you know to approach differently because of these 
specific requirements in the security. So the reason that matters is that when you do security within ad tech, there are a ton of edge cases that allow the bad actors to hide. And so when Jerome was explaining to me his technology vision for how he could see a world where we could solve this problem of bad ads better, I was able to tie the principles he was teaching me from a security perspective hmm. and identify the holes in his logic of how he was thinking of building a system, security system in ad tech. And specifically, there are, there are two main attributes that, that I push back on him to. One was from a detection point of view. And the other one is from a resolution point of view. So two, those are two of the three pillars that matter in security. How do you detect? How do you resolve? The third one is prevention. And I, we won't get to that today. But so with detection, every player, both from a vendor perspective and from a major company perspective, I Google and the like, were using a technology that was testing ads and telling, having, and telling you what the ad did in a test environment. So the assumption everyone had was that the behavior was the same in a test environment as in a live environment. And again, assumptions are where secure, so assumptions are what security uh, attackers exploit. And so I, I identified that, that this assumption was flawed and told them, hey, we need to find a way to have a better data source. There, there can be no effective game of cat and mouse if the bad actor controls the feedback loop. That's what he taught me. That's a core component, a core principle of security is control the feedback loop. Whoever mm -hmm. controls the feedback loop is in control of the arms race. And the system he was walking me through in terms of how the initiative approaches was not in control of the feedback loop. And so I pushed back on him and said, hey, how do you get us control? How do you get us a data source that we can trust? Where can you get it? Where is it? Where can you find it? And his answer was, you can't, it's not, this is the way we do it. I'm like, all right, all right, let's move on. Let's keep that in mind. Let's move on to the next thing, which is resolution. The, all the techno, because the technology systems were built on testing ads in a server a test environment, there was no way to integrate that learning back into the real-time environments that the, the industry was actually living in and acting on. And so for publishers specifically, they were the ones at the end of the chain of events. They're the ones that were being blamed by their users, and they're the ones that had the, the worst reputation and revenue hits from these bad ads occurring. They were the ones who had the, they had no action to take when an issue got detected. That was, that was in the right score. We conceived of the need to build this new type of technology and I'm persistent and Jerome's super smart. And so a year later, he figured out a way to do it. It took us another year to, to actually confirm it and then start building it. And then in alpha beta. And then in May of 2017, we came to market with the industry's first real-time blocking technology. And so it did two things. It, did, it integrated in the client side into a publisher's website so that we could monitor the real execution of the ads and, and use that data to, to, to power our detection system. And when we were able to see a bad impression, whether it be for a bad domain, a bad creative or any signal that we were looking for, we could block that individual impression and prevent it. So it was both a, a question of, of pushing on and innovating innovating uh, to, uh, to drive, create a new standard. And, and our standard has been adopted by the whole industry as the best way to, to do this work ever since. That's awesome. What was it like? A lot of times when you're bringing a new technology into the market, maybe even a new approach, your target customers don't quite get it. It's either too good to be true or they don't trust it or they don't believe the problem is true. How do you approach that? How did you get through that gauntlet on truly showing the value proposition, nailing it? Yeah, so it was funny. The, the moment we came out with this, it was a... a uh, was the one I look for. It's build it and they will come type of scenario. 
Uh, we built up enough relationships so people knew, uh, the people that needed to know knew what we were doing. We had a, a handful of a very smart publishers that were helping us during our alpha and beta to really make sure that we could integrate into their systems and not disrupt the flow of money that, that we're interjecting ourselves. In, in essence, we were positioning ourselves as a gatekeeper, and therefore we had to be very diligent to ensure that we only blocked the things that we needed to and not everything and not anything else that was actually making the money. And so we, it was your traditional uh, rocket ship launch that, uh, that has the numbers just keep climbing from day one. And, and that lasted for a solid year and a half. And it was, so we just started scaling, hiring, hiring sales, hiring more engineers and, and trying to do it. And so the publishers were coming to us. We were getting requests on Thanksgiving Eve for an account, and then they were integrating it Thanksgiving Day. We had a, that first year, we signed up accounts on Christmas Day and integrated them before New Year's. It was a quite a wild ride. It was also one that from a, a strategic kind of startup perspective, I mismanaged. So we, we had the rocket ship. We had what we needed. We had the thing that everyone in the industry wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I hadn't prepared enough for it. I, I thought a lot about the strategy of it and the long-term vision of it and how we could use this to conquer the whole industry but I didn't invest enough time and resources into properly structuring our sales and marketing so as to be able to make sure everyone knew about it and that we could capture sufficient market size to protect ourselves. I expected we'd have longer. And then because we, so we didn't actually, we are fine compared to traditional SaaS businesses. We've, we only raised uh, our series A in, uh, two years ago now, and we've only ever raised $4.1 million, $4 million uh, of equity money. And so we've achieved more than 2x that in, in traditional startups, uh, SaaS startups, I've been told for every 100K of MRR they generate, there's usually a million dollars of equity money invested to get them there. We achieved our growth with half of the traditional numbers. So it took us uh, half as much money as usual. But so the issue with that is that we uh, we made some wrong calls in terms of hiring at different times and didn't have the proper staffing. And, uh, and I didn't have the right attention to decide that while we were in this rocket ship growth, now is the time to go and raise a big round at the beginning before I really get too far ahead of myself, invest in the team, in, invest in all the processes and skills and, and use this window to capture the majority market share of the market. And therefore, since we didn't do that, we other company, other startups were attracted by, by our success and by what we saw and did. And they came into the market and then started. So although we've been very, we're thrilled with our success and our growth, I look back at that 2017, early 2018 period. And right, if I just, instead of leaning in and starting just doing, trying to do all the calls and, and do it, if I just said, oh, great, let's pause, take a step back. Let's go raise a few million now. Let's build everything before uh, before Christmas hits, and then let's push into 2018 with this a unique offering that is the only one in the market that actually solves the problem people are experiencing. It would have been a different story. This is something that I feel like comes up quite a bit with the founders I work with on the show in SaaS. There, there's this balance between there's market, product, and go-to-market. And a big part of the, the job as CEO is knowing how to optimize across the three, not to over index on product, not to ignore market. And also in, in your case, which I've certainly been guilty of and others have too, and knowing when to really push on the pedal for go to market. And by, by all means, there's also plenty of CEOs that hired too many salespeople before the product and the market was ready. So it goes yeah. both ways. So as you think about scaling today in 2021, growing the company, how do you find the balance or strike the balance between those three pillars? 
Yeah, that's a, it's a super sharp way to look at it. I think in our case, we've always been guided by one of our, our, our core principles, which is that Jerome, with Jerome, I knew that I had someone that, that was the best in his field. It's like he'd already received an honorable mention from Google Security, our Hall of Fame, just as we began our work. And I could, uh, and I was immediately impressed by him in the beginning because all the lessons that I had to learn the hard way by making mistakes, he he was when we were in our due diligence on each other. He was showing that he already had integrated those lessons into his mindset. So super savvy, uh, super smart, super high IQ. Just could not imagine a better co-founder type of thing. Yeah. And so I knew that no matter what, as long as I could give him time and space, I could guarantee success. I, there was no need for me to, uh, to over end that it's like startups are inherently very risky. And so I approached it with an attitude of let's do, let's, uh, I see my job as a bit of risk mitigation mm -hmm. and let's try and craft a story where I can guarantee as, as strongly as possible, a positive outcome. Yeah. And that's been our approach forever. And so we, that's probably led us to be more cost conscious than, than and less less big risk takers in terms of be, leaning in sometimes but it is also a, a path that's gone us where we are today which is uh, which is enviable and with a business that grew 31% last year even despite covid and was profitable at the same time so we kind of balance the let's go for growth with the let's make sure it's sustainable growth and so from where we go today it's it's funny it's like i've joked over the past year that our success to date has been in spite of our marketing and not because of it. And so that for us is the, is that next big challenge. Actually, let's unify our message and let's make sure that we're pushing it consistently into the market because we still have a vision for how this industry solves it, this problem at a much deeper level and at a much more effective scale than anything they're doing today. And so it's one of the reasons why we lean a lot into that, that third angle prevention or that third pillar of security. So I mentioned resolution and detection. Prevention is a key part of security too. And so we're very much involved in, in changing the industry for the better and putting our, our clients' interests ahead of ours to drive that. Yeah, it's so interesting. There's two ways to compete if you're in a, if you're in a competitive market. One is find the next great disruptive feature. And the second is find a differentiated narrative. And what's super interesting that I see in SaaS today is when you're dealing with a venture-backed founder, they tend to err towards the let's find a disruptive feature. When you're dealing with that, if that same company were to get bought out by a private equity firm and they have a three-year window and when they want to get it to EBITDA positive, faster growth and flip it, then they're going to err towards a differentiated strategic narrative. Uh, same company. And it's so fascinating because neither is right or wrong and both parties can do, but one errs towards let's go innovate and the other err look let's just go with what we have because it's selling fine let's differentiate and compete on the sales and marketing front to go to market front and it's super fascinating on which pill ceos choose depending on who their backers are and what their motives are and what their runways like and what they're yeah no i think so what's interesting is when you can combine the two together uh that's right. when it becomes self-reinforcing and so that that's where we, we got a bit, we initially, when we started out that initial ramp in 2017, we, we had that very strongly because we had both the disruptive feature and the underlying narrative driving it was, hey, we want to make security a utility for this industry, we, which is a, a vision that I still believe in very firmly and that I also see writ more large across the internet where, where security, I believe, needs to be a utility. And when I say utility, I have a specific thing in mind. I like think of the, 
think of the public-private utilities like the water company. So I'm based here in New York City. There's one major water company. It has to provide the water at high quality and at a low cost because it's a service that everyone requires. And so it has, by design, been commoditized, not in a negative sense, but to a point where it's like it can be delivered. It is a commodity that can just be delivered consistently. That's what something being commoditized actually means. Commodities are not bad. Commodities are standards. And security, I believe, is, is one of those areas that that the internet is evolving differently than the analog world. So the digital world is different than the analog world in that in the analog world, security is a utility as well. And, and, it, and it's run as such, and definitely there are, there are some issues with how it's run, but in and of itself, it still remains this public utility that is there for the public good and, yeah. and that is structured or should be structured to that point. The internet, the digital world has not approached security the same way. It's much more complicated. It's a completely different type of security. It's a completely different type of world. And so we, with Confiant, we saw an opportunity just within the ad world to, to play the market against itself and turn ourselves into utility. And unfortunately, because our initial growth didn't hit the high enough level of escape facility, we didn't capture enough of the market to, to flip it into that. But our underlying strategic narrative that we started out with was one in which I see a path where we can capture the whole market. I by and by the way we do that is by making it in the in market's best interest for that to happen. I think uh, one, of the, so, one of the tough things about narratives is there's a fine line between soapbox and actionable when it comes to that's narrative. a good very good point. Yeah. That's like for example, a narrative of security is should be a utility is ambitious, transformational, like it checks off a bunch of boxes. But it's cool. Let me know when it's a secure when it's a utility. Whereas a narrative around, look, you need a firewall for your ads infrastructure. You have a firewall for your network infrastructure. You need a firewall for your, and that's like a narrative where it's, oh, interesting. And that's where, that's why narratives, I think, are super fascinating and interesting because there's part science, part art to developing them, to get them to take Mm -hmm. action, which is why I think a lot of founders tend to towards innovation because in relatively speaking it's more concrete because i know this feature is going to differentiate versus this narrative which feels a little bit airy uh unless <laughs> until you like really see it work so it's super fascinating i i want to be respective of your time i feel like we can i, I can nerd out about strategic narrative <laughs> because that's i work work on that all day long but you're going through obviously you've gone through ebbs and flows with the business you're profitable you're growing which is amazing and you're in a really great space with a ton of opportunity. And it seems like in terms of security in your space in ad tech, like we're on the first inning, like there's so much more to be done here. And so having gone through that as inflows and done multiple startups, what's the one habit, what's the one, one advice you would give to other founders that are going through the same Shawshank crawl to the next stage of growth to help manage their lives and manage their mindset. What, what's the one trick that you picked up along the way that served you? I think my, my, my best kind of pithy quip is, is to really focus on the sequence. The, uh, the sequence matters. And I say that in, in, because if one focuses on the sequence, it's going to give one a sense of time because things have to happen in order. And sometimes you can skip steps. Sometimes you can, you, know, you can turn left and completely avoid something, but in and of itself, it is, there is going to be this kind of sequential development mm-hmm. that if, if done well, allows one to feel 
comfortable with one's accomplishments. I've talked to a lot of founders and, and it's a very common echo that I hear from them. I'm not happy enough with what I've accomplished. I didn't say, oh, I could have, should have, would have. And I think the having that sense of time, recognizing that the, the sequence matters is has been a way for me to, to really keep myself aligned on the fact that yes, we may sprint sometimes, but this, this is a marathon. This is years of work and the, it will shift, it will change, but that ability to know that it doesn't need to happen in a day and that it is in the, that if you put in an effort over years, it does accumulate. And if you focus on the sequence, you'll have laid the right stones before the right framework behind you that you can lean on and that supports you and that just keeps building in a methodical way while keeping an eye out for those opportunities that are exponential. So I talk a lot with my product team about the difference between incremental uh, and exponential. Both are sequential, but they are one is one is addition and one is multiplication. They are, they are two different part paths and they both are, are necessary to keep uh, a system moving forward successfully. That's really good advice. I agree with it. I think one of the biggest things I've learned in my journey is in the, like baby TK would hold his breath a lot. Hold your breath until the next release or hold your breath until the deal closes or hold your breath until the next fundraise. And inevitably, by the time you cross that goal, there was another one you were holding your breath for. Yeah. And I think we've all gone through that. And then eventually you learn that it's a, it's a journey. It's a marathon. <laughs> like I would tell a baby TK to, if he hasn't yet read this book as well, which is called Breath. It uh, came out last summer. It is, uh, it's a good one. It's a very good one. I highly recommend it. It's all about the lost art of breathing, actually, and how you can, uh, you can use that to, to control and better and just very simple mechanical things lead to, uh, to very big positive changes. I'll definitely have to check that out. That sounds awesome. LD, this was a blast. I feel like we could go on forever. I'm so excited for you. Congratulations on all your progress. And it, it sounds like you have the right mindset because I think you have an incredible company ahead to build and grow, continue to grow because of the space that you're in. And I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom here today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk and for your great questions. And I made some notes on what you said, like firewall for your ads infrastructure. You may see that pop up. I, I made that up. I don't back it. I have a structured way of developing narratives. So happy to talk about that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for, for, the, for the time today and for your questions and opportunity. Absolutely. By the way, before we wrap up over here, I have something special for you. If you are a seed stage founder and you are navigating the Shawshank crawl to get to that next stage of growth, one of the biggest things you'll be thinking about is your go-to-market strategy. In fact, it's only 40% of seed stage companies actually graduate to the Series A stage. And depending on which report you look at, that number can go to as low as 4%. There are different research studies around this. But one thing's for sure, the biggest killer of seed stage companies is the lack of a go-to-market strategy. So if you're a seed stage founder and you want to make sure you have the right go-to-market strategy, I invite you to download my five-point SaaS growth strategy guide. It's completely free. It's available to founders that are part of this unstoppable community. So all you need to do is just go to getunstoppable.com strategy and you can download the guide for free. I'll also include a link to it in the show notes. You can just click over there or just go to getunstoppable.com strategy to download the free five-point SaaS growth strategy guide. It's got my best ideas based on all the interviews I've done, based on everything that I've learned on exactly how to craft an unstoppable go-to-market strategy so you can accelerate your path to the next stage of growth. If you liked this episode, please let us know by tweeting out this episode and mentioning us. There's a click to tweet link 
and episode direction, uh, episode description, not direction. Down below, I'll also include a link to LD's LinkedIn profile and Confine's website, so you can check them out as well. Remember, everyone needs a strategy for, for their life and their business. When you are with us, yours, it's going to be unstoppable. I'm TK, and I'll see you in the next episode.